Well, here we are. <laughs> you know, I want to say something. Uh, the Haiti team, the group that went to Haiti, we really need to thank God for, for that ministry. Recently, I was listening to a program about Haiti, and uh, according to the statistics that were given on that program, one of five children dies in, in early childhood because of lack of food, lack of medical care. So, Jim, we thank God that he gave you the inspiration, and for those uh, who followed it, what a blessing to know that such a ministry can still go forth. <clears throat> You know, I, I'm an Okie, as Bill was kind of mocking us. <laughs> and when I grew up in Oklahoma, before we had all of these lakes, eastern Oklahoma was very arid, very dry. We never had snow. We had anything at all to be a little bit of ice in February. But in the fall of 1952, after having worked on the railroad for almost four years, God said to me, this is not what I want you to do the rest of your life. And so I quit my job at the railroad. Barb had already quit her job at the telephone company. And with a baby, we went to Ohio, Cincinnati. <laughs> and I can remember that first winter, that first snowfall. I thought, that's the most beautiful thing I believe I've ever seen. By the time that winter was over, I didn't want to see another snowflake. <laughs> Far different kind of world <laughs> than we have here. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer published one of the most influential books of the century. The title was, How Should We Then Live? And in that book, he talked about the various influences that had brought about the contemporary culture of that time, and many of them are still influencing the culture of our day. And he gave his view as to really how we should live in the midst of this crazy culture in which Christians seek to exist. Now, it's interesting, in his uh, book, he put forth some very conservative points of view. The Roman Catholic Church rejoiced in what he said about pro-life, rejected some of the other things he said, Conservative Protestants seem to embrace it in its entirety. The theological liberals and the progressive politicians rejected everything that he said. But in the book, he put forth the answer to the question, how should we then live? Last Sunday night, we finished the Sunday night seminar in which we, together, about 25 to 35 of us every Sunday night, studied together Paul's letters to the church at Corinth and the churches of America. And over and over again in that letter, Paul answered that question for the Corinthians. How should we then live? And some of the questions that he dealt with related only to Corinth. They had written a letter and asked him about several things. So Paul's writings to them, to a large part, was responding to their questions. And many of the answers that he gave related only to the Corinthians. But most of them were universal and for all time as he answered the question, How should we then live? And, and as I prayed about what word to bring today, 
because so much of that class is still on my mind, I wonder how much of this is God, how much is just Jim's caught up still in 1 Corinthians. But I do believe God has given a word for today. As we read about all of the situations that Paul related to, gave answers to, underlying all of these situations and all of his answers, there were two abiding principles, authority and love. Every one of the answers he gave as to how should we then live had those two principles as the foundation, authority and love. Let's talk about those this morning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the episode in which Jesus, after the triumphal entry, had gone into the temple and cast out the money changers and turned over their tables. But when he did that, it is interesting, according to Matthew 21, that the people began bringing the lame to him and the blind to him, and he began to heal them, and the children were still shouting, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the chief priests and elders came to Jesus and said, By what authority do you do these things? He said, uh, Who was John the Baptist? <laughs> and you see the chief priests and elders huddling, what, how are we going to answer this? If we say he's a prophet, he's going to say, then why don't you believe him? He said, I'm the Messiah. But if we say he's just a man, here's the crowd watching. The crowd thinks he's a prophet. They'll attack us. How can we answer this Jesus? And they said, well, we just don't know. They took the easy way out. But that really is the question, isn't it? By what authority do you do these things? As we have pointed out before, the word apostolos means one sent with a commission. The word we render is apostle. It doesn't just mean someone who's sent. That would be the Greek word pimpo. But the emphasis on the word apostello, which is the verb, apostolos, which is the noun, is one sent with a commission. And the question to always ask then is, what is a commission? For example, Ephrodotus, and we mentioned him before, the Philippians sent him to visit Paul in prison and take money from Philippi to Paul. And Paul, writing about them, said, your apostle Epaphroditus has come to us. His apostleship, his commission was to take money from Philippi to Rome where Paul was in jail. And so he was an apostle. He had a commission. He was sent and he fulfilled it. But there was a special class of beings who had a special commission. And the term I like to give to these is revelatory apostles. They are the ones to whom the Lord Jesus gave the commission to communicate to all the world for all time his truths, his revelation, and who he was. Now, who is the head of the church? Jesus. But Jesus has gone on to heaven. How can we put questions to him? Well, before he left, you recall he in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, we have that wonderful scene in which Jesus was meeting with his 
apostles at the time they were just disciples at then and describing to them what their life was going to be like and he said after I go away the Holy Spirit will come and there are a lot of things I said you don't remember he'll make you remember every one of them there are a lot of things I said you don't understand he'll cause you to understand every one of them and there's some things that I didn't even mention he will reveal those to you and so these who were in that upper room with Jesus were given the commission to take the truths that he has spoken, those revealed by the Holy Spirit, and begin to proclaim them to all the world. This is divine and eternal truth. And they did that. But remember, all authority ultimately belongs to Jesus. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And then he commissioned them. Go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation. Immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Then teach them. He commissioned them. Teach them everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you to the end of the age. So the apostles were given that commission to reveal Jesus Christ, to reveal his will, to reveal who he was to all nations for all time. And that's important to realize. Jude writing this said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you concerning our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all, that's a key word, once for all delivered to the saints. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and decide our only, uh, deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jesus is the ultimate authority. The Bible is not my authority. Jesus is, but we'll get to that in a minute. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority, and he passed on that authority to the apostles who delivered to the saints once for all. Jesus has all authority. In 1 Corinthians 15, you remember that scene, and we have so much revelation in that chapter concerning the relationship between the Father and the Son. Speaking of Jesus, it writes, Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished, speaking of Jesus, all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Jesus is the authority in this age in which we're presently living. He's the head of the church, and any true church is one that proclaims the truths that Jesus has passed on to us. But he did this, of course, through the apostles. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which really is not another. Oh, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. For I would have you know, brethren, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There's some things about the life of Paul that we don't know for certain, and we have to speculate as we look at all the things that fit together. At some point, after Jesus had met Paul on the road to Damascus, and he'd become a Saul of Tarsus, had become Paul the Apostle, at some point, Jesus Christ appeared to him and presented to him the gospel and the truths that he was to present. He said, I didn't hear this from any man. No man taught it to me, but I received it directly from Jesus Christ. And so the gospel I preached to you isn't my idea. It isn't Peter's idea. It's not John's idea. He said, I didn't talk to any of them until Jesus Christ had already given me the gospel. So Jesus Christ is a supreme authority, but he has passed that on to us through the apostles. By what authority do you do these things? Paul could say, I'll tell you by what authority. The authority that Jesus Christ gave me, the message that I now proclaim. Titus, who was Paul's representative and dealing with some of the most difficult situations in the early church, Paul left him behind in Crete. He said, I left you in Crete to put in order the things that remain that you ordain elders in every city and so on and so on. And then in verse 15 of chapter 2, he said, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And what was true of Paul was true of all the revelatory apostles. Well, Jesus has gone to heaven. The apostles were all dead. <laughs> what do we do? Thanks be to God, they knew how to write. <laughs> and they have written for us these marvelous documents. Aren't we thankful that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrought four biographies of Jesus Christ? Aren't we thankful that Paul wrote 14 epistles dealing with all kinds of stuff? Aren't we thankful for the epistles of John and Peter and Jude and James as the Holy Spirit moved and gave them what to write and directed that what they did write was absolutely true? And then aren't we thankful? You know, here's an interesting thing. Every one of those people who wrote a document had no idea about a Bible. They wrote individual documents, usually for a specific crowd, Matthew to Jews, Mark to Romans, Luke to Greeks, John to the Greek philosophers, and all the epistles written just to specific people for specific things. But almost immediately, church leaders began finding out what had been written to this church. We'd like a copy of that. What have been written to this church? We had copy of that. As you remember from the course, those of you who are in the First Corinthians course, Clement of Rome wrote a letter from Rome to Corinth, 
about five years after John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. And in that, he referred to the, Paul, to the letter Paul had written to the Corinthians. Here, Clement in Rome had already seen a copy of the letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians. So early on, believers began gathering these documents together. And then they began to discern between what truly were the Holy Spirit-inspired documents from the apostles and which ones were devotional literature. And there's some wonderful devotional literature that came in those very early centuries. Some of it rather bizarre. Roman Catholics have the same Old Testament we have, but then they also have what they call deuterocanonical books. Some of those are worth reading, although they're not divinely inspired. Some of them, the Maccabees, for example, are just good history. But early on, the church began to say, what did an apostle write to Philippians? What did an apostle write to Corinth? What did the apostle write? What did Peter write? And they began to collect these. One of the earliest lists is in 385 A.D. in which Athanasius describes the apostolic documents of the New Testament, the exact same list we have today in our Protestant Bibles. So early on, these began to be gathered. The ultimate authority is Jesus Christ, passed down through the apostles to us in Holy Scripture. It's important to realize the Bible is not my authority. Jesus is my authority. But that's been communicated to us through the apostles and in Holy Scripture. And anyone who preaches or teaches anything that is a substitute for the truths presented in the Word of God, oh my, I'd hate to be that person in the judgment day. Anyone who preaches something that contradicts that, oh, I'd hate to be that person in the judgment day. Isn't it tragic that in our day, we see denominations, we see independent churches, churches of various color and ilk, so to speak, beginning to allow humanism, scientism, psychology, all of these things begin to determine what they teach, advocate, and in some cases really strongly fight for. I'm so pleased that the United Methodist Church in its meeting in St. Louis last week took a strong stand for same-sex marriage. It's wrong. However, did, did you notice the vote? The vote was close. The vote was close. And many churches, one homosexual bishop planning to lead people out of the church. Isn't that sad? But praise be to God. <laughs> the officials in that gathering took a stand for the truth of God's word. We need to rejoice in that. But we better pray for those <coughs> who went the other way because I don't think that they're going to have a very good time when they stand before the Lord. <laughs> the primary thing that underlies, that must always underline our questions, how we behave, what we do, what we teach, one of the foundational principles that must always be there is the principle of authority, the authority of Jesus 
conveyed through the apostles and today codified for us in God's Word. Aren't we thankful that we have Bibles? I'm so thankful that I was not born in the year 1400 because before Bibles were published and distributed. Today we say to someone, you need to get in the Word. Did you know before the printing press you couldn't really say that to the average church member? They had to depend on some clergyman or someone to kind of tell them what it said. I tell you, we are living in a tremendously blessed time because we have Bibles and everybody can read it. And you can read it in your own language. You don't have to read it in Latin or Greek or Hebrew, but we can read it in English. Praise be to God. We thank the Lord for his holy word. The second foundational principle to the answer of how should we then live is a principle of love. Love has to be a constant element in everything we do, what we preach, and what we practice. When I was a schoolboy growing up in Muskogee, Oklahoma, attending the public schools, <clears throat> Irving Elementary, Alice Robertson Junior High, and Muskogee Central. Every day, school began with the reading of Scripture. And then in unison, we all recited the Lord's Prayer. And then we stood at attention and faced the American flag with our hand over our heart and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I don't think school starts that way anymore, does it? <laughs> you know, the teachers would read Scripture, often a psalm, but one chapter of God's Word that was read over and over was 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> and even if you had not set out to memorize it, you heard it so often it sort of got stuck, you know, to the point you could, and and of course we heard it in the King James, and I that's all of my scripture memory for years was in the King James. Frankly, I still find it relatively easily. There's such a wonderful rhythm and cadence in that rendition, and I really don't understand why anybody can understand it. When you say "wist ye not," I must be about my father's business. Don't you know what that means? <laughs> I wonder about anybody's intelligence who doesn't, but I'll not judge any of you. <laughs> One of the challenges I've faced over the years is since all of the scripture has been put up here in King James, and I'm trying and trying and trying and trying to switch over to the New American Standard, and sometimes that causes confusion, and I can't remember it anymore. And I, anyway, here's how it goes. If I speak with a tongue, by the way, the background is, remember you were in the class that the great controversy was taking place in the Corinthian church. The tongue speakers and the prophets were vying for attention and there was jealousy and there was rivalry and Sunday morning was somewhat of a melee. And so in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul said, here's how you manage these things if you have them in your service. And then, chapter 13, he says, but I'll show you a better way. If I speak in the tongues of men and, and even of angels, 
but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have the faith to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Though I give all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Love does not brag, does not behave in an arrogant manner does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child, but... When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see through a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully as even as I am known. Now abides faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Of course, your King James, the word used charity. We'll talk about that in a minute. When our Lord rings down the curtain on history, there won't be any more faith (laughs) because that for which we had believed will be reality. (laughs) There won't be any more hope because that for which we have hoped for (laughs) will be experience. But love will continue in the kingdom of God throughout eternity. Again, I want to repeat what we've said so often from this pulpit. We need to understand this word love. In English, we have just one word. You know, I can say, well, I love my wife. I love to watch a sunset. I love in the morning having a bowl of steel-cut oats with milk and olive oil on it and a little bit of Cinnamon applesauce and Brahms toast made with raisin walnut bread and similar granelles marmalade on it. I love that. We have one word for all kinds of things. <laughs> you know, the Greeks were much more specific. They had a lot of words. The four main ones were these, eros, from which we get the word erotic, Eros refers to romantic love. It can even refer to sexual enticement. Very emotional word. Second word is philos. Philos has the idea of 
brotherly love, of friendship, the kind of thing we should feel for one another in the church. The verb stergo and the noun storge has the idea of love in a family, the love a father has for a child, the love a child has for the family. And don't we know what that is? (laughs) I grew up with two sets of parents. My uncle and aunt, when I was born, came to the hospital and asked my parents, may we share your children? My aunt had been sick and had to have a hysterectomy and they could have no children. And so my parents said, we'll share our children. So I grew up with an uncle and aunt and a mother and father, and I spent just about equal time with them. I had a lot of oversight. (laughs) But I can remember sitting in church one Sunday morning. My uncle and aunt were on this side, my mother and father on this side, and I began to look at them. wonder who I love the most. (laughs) Storge, familial love. The other word, the dominant word in Scripture is agape. Emotion can be associated with agape, but not necessarily so because it's a volitional word that requires a choice. And sometimes agape will require me to do something that contradicts perhaps what filet or storge or one of those other words, my emotions. Because of agape, I will violate my emotion because I know this is right and that's wrong. Even as a parent, you know, Paul writing in Hebrew, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, you may disagree, that's my opinion. In chapter 12, he talks about how God disciplines us. He says, like a father disciplines a son whom he loves, God the Father disciplines us. When my children were small, from time to time, I would take off my belt and fold it in half and give them a whipping. (laughs) I folded in half because it made more noise that way. (laughs) And you know, I heard as a child the axiom of father saying, son, this hurts me more than it does you. And when I was getting a whipping as a kid, I couldn't figure that out. And I got plenty of them. My mother, I'm telling you what, my mother always did the whipping, not my daddy. And she'd make me go cut a switch. If it wasn't big enough, I'd have to go get another one. And one time my sister and I both were going to get switched, and my sister refused to go. She's very strong-willed, so I had to cut one for her and one for me, which really helped my relationship with my sister. (laughs) I didn't understand that. How can this hurt you more than it does me? But as a father, I found that out. It was painful for me to whip my boys, but I did because Agape said, forget about uh, Storge. They need a whipping. Agape said, take off your belt and do something about it. There are times agape requires us to violate those other emotional feelings because agape will always do what is right, what is God's will. Sometimes as I'm talking to people in, well, shall we say counseling circles, been years ago, but I heard this presented when I was in those circles. I'm no longer in them. That a person's emotions really define who they are. I totally deny that. My decisions determine who I am in spite of what I feel sometimes. I must make the right decision. 
that's agape. When Paul learned that in the Corinthian church, there was a man who had an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife. It wasn't the man's biological mother having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Father perhaps was divorced, his mother died, we don't know. Paul said, excommunicate the man. You Corinthians, something's wrong with you. You're bragging about how liberal-minded you are. I don't praise you, I scold you, he said. <laughs> excommunicate the man. But notice, he said, there are two reasons why. Your boasting is not good, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole dump of dough? So that's the first thing, his love for the church. You know, I, I mentioned, I think, in a recent meeting, there's a boy reading about the, the British when they were campaigning in Egypt, and one of the sayings that came out of this was, if you let a camel put his nose in your tent, before long he'll be in your tent and you'll be outside. Probably that doesn't make any sense to anybody here. <laughs> but there's that principle. You let a little thing start. Where does it end? A little leaven leavens the whole lot. If you're going to tolerate that kind of sin in your church, who knows what's next? So out of love, take this action. But then the second one was this. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's love. That's love. Agape says, excommunicate him. Why? For the love of the church, but also for the love of this man, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. You know that worked? The man repented, and the Corinthians church didn't want to receive him back. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul didn't scold the church again. <laughs> receive the man back. He's repented. Don't let that sorrow go on. It's going to destroy him. But Agape said, excommunicate him in order that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul constantly reminded the Corinthian church that the reason he was exercising his apostolic authority was because he loved him. One time, one writing, remember, he said, "When I, I'm a father to you. You may have many tutors, but only one father. Now let me speak to you as a father. When I come to visit you, should I come with gentleness or bring a rod? <laughs> Gave him that choice, you know, because he loved them. But he wrote this in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be made sorrowful, that you might know the love I have especially for you. He couldn't do anything other than write some harsh words sometimes, although it broke his heart because he loved them. Love, a foundation for all of the other things that he addressed in that book. Jesus put forth a dictum that is a mark of every Christian. I say to you, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Why? Agape. There may be someone whose personality or temperament just rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> but I must demonstrate agape to them or I am being disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5.2, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We could just go on and on and on and fill the whole morning <laughs> reading all of the verses that exhort us to agape love. So Paul, in the many different things he addressed in his letters to Corinth, every one of his answers to the question, how should we then live, every one of them was built upon Two principles, authority and love. It's important that those two principles be present in all we do. How should we then live? Well, begin to the recognition of all ultimate authority and the manifestation of agape. May God be praised.